And welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host. And today we are going to start with a very, very beautiful subject, Hawaiian Lays. My first guest wrote an entire and gorgeous book on this topic. It's called Lay Aloha. She is Meliana Estes. Hey, Meliana, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So this is a topic I thought I knew a lot about, and boy, oh boy, did I learn a lot from your book. (laughs) Anybody who's been to Hawaii has probably been greeted with a beautiful flower lay around their necks or maybe one made of little nuts, but I didn't understand really the significance of the lay. So I'd, I'd love to start today's talk with you just giving us a little bit of, of a background as to why people give lays to one another and, and what they've meant in the culture over the centuries. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'm so grateful that a copy of Le Aloha found its way to you. You know, I'm never sure where the book's ending up. And so that makes me so happy that it's having a, a broad reach. You know, for me, doing this book was important because lay are just so intrinsic to all parts of our life in Hawaii. And I really wanted to convey that through this book. They're not used only for greetings. They're not used only for weddings. They're used really in all parts of our lives. And that is because Lei, you know, I titled the book Lei Aloha because when I was when I was doing my interview process with wine practitioners and lei makers and people that I adored and admired, I one of the first questions I always asked was, "What is Lei to you?" And the common answer was, "Lei is Aloha, Lei is Aloha." And I'm like, "Okay, great, that's the name of the book," you know. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, and it really is. I mean, Lei is uh, to share a Lei is to share your Aloha, your love, your your warmth, your acceptance, your, your invitation, you know, your respect. And it, it's done in so many ways. And so it really is a symbol of our aloha. And aloha, as you know, is such a deep word for Hawaii because for Hawaiians, because it's kind of how we can, it's kind of how we feel we conduct ourselves. It means so many things. It's, it's hello, goodbye. It's mahalo. It's thank you. It's love. It's, it's your spirit. The aloha spirit is how we, how we, we aim to, live our life. And so I feel like the lay is really a symbol of that, you know, and of sharing that with other people. Yeah. I was also uh, struck by the fact that lay, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago could be a sign of nobility, that that this was a ceremonial adornment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you talk a little bit, not just of, of the personal uses of lays, but also why they were so important in Hawaiian history? Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, this dates back to early Polynesian history, really. So before even Hawaiians can be documented wearing lei in Polynesia, throughout our Poly- Polynesian countries, which we consider to be our cousins, mm-hmm. lei have always been used to honor deities, to God, put on altars. It's a symbol, whether they were made of seeds, feathers, feathers were reserved for nobility. So in some ways, the more precious the material, the higher ranking official or kahu or god or chief would be adorned with that lei. And so when you date back and when you go to a bishop museum, there's wonderful places you can learn about these types of uses for lei, for sure. Right. And it's just amazing because that has continued on. And I think in some ways where you see that more 
common modernly is definitely in hula because mm. when a hula halal selects their dance, they're usually honoring, they want to honor Hiyaka, they want to honor Pele, they want to honor various different goddesses and gods that are part of our culture. And so they choose a lei to represent that god or goddess. And so it's still used in that way. But what I love about that is, again, it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of aloha. It's a sign of caring. And that sort of is a thread in, in all levels. You know what I mean? So it's a thread in yeah. really cultural practitioners still in hula. It's a thread in even greeting someone coming off a plane. But it's coming from the same place. I thought it was interesting. You also say at one point in the book that hula dancers considered adorning themselves with lei. That's a way for them to become one with nature too. Uh, so that's that's another layer of what the lei symbolizes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I, I quoted a very wonderful person in saying that, and his name is Kuha Ozane. He comes from a very um, strong lineage of hula families on the Big Island. And he is the one who really explained this notion to me in such a beautiful way that I really want to use this quote in the book. Um, he says, when you're a hula dancer, you're an embodiment of the ku, kuahu, the altar that we have in the halal. So when you're interacting and performing, you're actually dressing yourself as an offering because you are, he says about dancing, you are actually dressing yourself as an offering to the goddess yeah. that you're honoring. And so wow. that is the same. Yeah, it's a very, I love the way he said that because it really, to me, tied so many concepts together that were, you know, it's hard to explain. And I think that was an important part of this book for me. It was really calling upon practitioners who have studied this, these parts of different like sharing in a much more in-depth way than I have. And to be able to right. really honor their education and their practice sure. was really important to me. Now, the person in your life who I think it's fair to say introduced you to Lay's uh, was your grandmother. But she did not start making lays as a child. This was something that, that became part of her life much later on. Can you tell your grandmother's story a little bit? Well, sure. So um, so my tutu, my, my tutu, Amelia Ana Kaupua Bailey, she really did become very much an avid laymaker later in her life. Um, and it was part of the Hawaiian Renaissance, I think, for her. Because I think what a lot of people don't understand about Hawaii is that we were we didn't become a state till 1950. We were her, the royalty was disbanded, you know, in 1893. And so we're relatively, we're actually a very new part of America. Right. But in that whole history, a lot, a lot of our culture was lost. The language, the, the music, certain traditional styles of hula, a lot of traditional styles of lay, navigation, these things weren't taught. They weren't celebrated when my tutu was growing up, you know, in the twenties. And so, you know, she definitely knew how to string a lei with needle and thread and plumeria and sort of a lei that were more celebrated at the, starting in the 50s when you think of like the boat days and all these lei coming off the mats and ships. That was more what was sort of taught and celebrated. And I think as part of the culture renaissance in the late 60s, early 70s, these sort of traditional styles of art really started to become more in the forefront. And Lay being one of them, because the style of lay that she really fell in love with and became so interested in learning every part about it, and later in her life, was these lays done in the more traditional techni techniques. Um, we typically say haku lay, but haku really is a term that means to braid. 
it's really to braid a lei po, which is a head lei, or you could also wear it around your neck. And there's a couple different styles within these traditional techniques. Um, haku is one. Vili is to wind or wrap natural materials on a backing. That's another. Um, Healy is to braid, and haku is actually to braid and add an item in. Healy is to braid one material. So I think what's really neat about my tutu is that with anything she did, because she had this amazing zest for life and, and interest in learning, and whatever she just chose to do, whether it was learning standard base at age 75 or <laughs> learning huh. you know, to make lay <laughs> when she was younger, um, she did it with everything she had. And so she really did pour herself into learning this and, and becoming a very beautiful laymaker and a very well-respected laymaker on the state. And even to this day, what I feel so fortunate is that, I mean, there really wasn't a sporting event. I didn't have a lay po'o on my head, you know, done by her or a birthday oh. or a best friend's birthday at my high school. Like she'd always make a lay for whoever I needed and greet, greet us all with lay for our heads and you know armfuls of pokenikenny that she sewn and grown and it for just not me but for really all of us in my family we just we're so blessed to have this adornment always you know and i yes, think absolutely so she taught you and you are now teaching others if if somebody wants to learn this art when they go to hawaii what do the classes consist of and how long does it take it's interesting because there's so many different styles of lay to make. I think what she taught me, what I really continue and what I like to teach is a style of lay called vili, which is to wind using natural materials. And I'm not going to lie, it does take a little while to master this or to even to really do a, a nice lay. Um, uh-huh. But I really, but I think in those classes that I'm able to teach, you know, whether they're an hour or two hours, I feel like I'm able to share part of the culture. I'm able to share a little knowledge of native plants. And I'm also to share, able to share that doing this style of lay, you can really use what's in abundance around you. And whether you're in California, you're on the East Coast, whether you're honestly in India, when I traveled in India, I took raffia with me to make lay. You can really do this huh? anywhere. And it's, and it's all just part of, to me, it's again, just spreading knowledge and aloha wherever you are. I, yes. I really do shy away from needing to use a certain material that's going to make your lay look this way. And I think that's partly conservation. That's partly knowing that my very favorite plants to use, some are endangered right now, you know, or some are going through a time where we're giving well, that Well, I was going to ask you that. You, you mm -hmm. make a very interesting point in the book that because land has gotten to be so valuable in Hawaii, a lot mm -hmm. of the farms where people used to get their flowers from are now resorts or other types of businesses, and it's harder to get local flowers. In fact, a lot mm -hmm. of people, when they go to Hawaii, the lei that they will get will be made with flowers from Asia. That was a shocker to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really sad. And it's, it's really something I think I'm noticing more and more people are trying to give attention to. But it's true. I mean, less and less backyard growers are able to grow their pakalana and their peacocky and their plumeria that then they're selling to the lay shops to support the lay industry. And so when people need lay in abundance in a great amount, they're usually leaning towards using purple orchid from Thailand. And I'm really, I feel like there's such an opportunity in Hawaii with farms and different, even resorts, you know, that are 
taking up land for lay, maybe they make sure they have a native plant garden. And so if I'm coming in to do a laymaking class or anybody is, or a different laymaker is able to actually use the plants on the grounds, teach the guests at the hotel about these plants that are important to our culture. So there's so much opportunity, honestly, in education and growing flower materials. Um, it just, we just need to do it. And I really do hope the state or sort of is able to subsidize farmers who are growing more plant plants or more flowers for yeah. lay because it is such an important thing. And it's true. You go down to Chinatown where I talk about the lay industry in the book a lot. And what used to be like a $5 plumeria lay will now be 10, $12 and people balk at that wow. and they get really shocked. But I don't because I mm -hmm. understand the struggle of all the growers and the laymakers and the people who are stringing them. I mean, it's, I don't want it to, we, nobody wants it to die as an art. I think I was just down there talking with Karen who owns Cindy's Lay Shop yesterday about the importance of everyone owning a lay needle. You know, it's so important, <laughs> you know, for everyone to know how to string a lay, you know, and it's, and go yeah. pick the, pick the plumeria that are falling outside of your neighbor's tree and just, Hey, can I pick the plumeria? So I think it's just continuing that and making sure that we're all making lay as much as we can with whatever is in abundance around us. And then as a lay maker, you know, especially for the style that I love to make, the responsibility is, is yours to grow your lay garden, to grow the materials you need. So I think there's a lot, a lot to learn and a lot of potential, absolutely. honestly. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and one of the wonderful things of your book, uh, about your book, Lay Aloha, is you have splendid pictures which show mm -hmm the incredible variety of lay and the intricacy of, of some lay and, and the joy of giving it, that that really comes through, that this is not just an art or that this is an important art, mm -hmm. I should say. This mm -hmm. is an important Polynesian art, but one, as you say somewhere in the book, that's all about good intentions, that's all about creating this art with the intention of, of sharing aloha, sharing love, creating community. It, it really was a very, very moving book. So my, my congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for sharing this book and sharing this conversation. Mahalo. Mahalo to you too for having me. Have a great day. Aloha. Sometimes you don't just travel. Sometimes you can actually do some good in the world when you're on the road. To talk about a really terrific way to make a difference when you're traveling, I have Tara Eaton on the line. She is one of the founders of the Orange County chapter of Not Just Tourists. Hey, Tara, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Hi, Pauline. Thank you. So tell me, what is Not Just Tourists? Well, what we do is we take surplus medical supplies, pack them into suitcases, and give them free of charge to people who are traveling on vacation to developing countries. How do you get surplus medical supplies? Is this a, uh, an organization that's only open to doctors and nurses? Not at all. Surplus medical supplies are amazingly easy to get. It's amazing how much stuff gets thrown away in our country every mm. year, billions of dollars well, every year. So we have, an, we have most of our 
supplies come from a single hospital in the city of Orange, but we also get home health care supplies from people that no longer need them. So you, as the head of the chapter, do that? And then how do folks who just want to help out participate? So people who want to take a suitcase on vacation can go on our website. It's njt.net and sign up to take a suitcase and we'll take it from there. We'll get the suitcase to them and they take it to their destination. Wow. And what, what, what are, what's in the suitcase? Can the volunteer open the suitcase oh, and absolutely. look and see what's in? They have to actually, so they can, they can honestly tell TSA that they packed it themselves. Huh. Uh, they want to go through, they want to rifle through it. They want to make sure there's nothing that they're uncomfortable with. We don't pack any medications. And if for any reason there was something in a suitcase that you're like, oh, I don't want to take needles, then take it out. Hmm. <laughs> you know, just, okay. then, you know, and I do custom suitcases sometimes for people that want to take specific things. But what, what are the most common things that, that, that clinics in other countries need and that you provide? What they need is the basics. They need bandages. They need needles. They need IV equipment, um, gauze, plaster casting. And we have all of that. That, that's amazing. And so you you get it from a hospital and also from uh, AIDS, healthcare AIDS. Mm -hmm. You pass it along. Who first thought of doing this? This started in Canada 30 years ago. Huh. Uh, a doctor and his wife were traveling to Cuba regularly, and there was a huge need there. And they said, you know, we, we get this stuff for free. <laughs> We've got all this stuff, and people are throwing it away. Hospitals here and in Canada are, are throwing away things. It's ending up in the landfill and it's perfectly huh. good. It's not expired. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's, you know, there's all kinds of rules and regulations as to, to why things can't be restocked after a patient huh. leaves the hospital. And there's, you know, there's overstock with, with COVID. We had a lot of, we're getting a lot of gowns and masks now, things that mm. were, things that there were shortages of that now nobody wants. Um, the vaccination kits, all of that. Overstocks are amazing. A, a hospital will accidentally order the wrong brand of needle and the nurses will refuse to use that brand. Huh. <laughs> so they, they're like, wow. here, I've got three pallets of needles. You want them? It's hmm. crazy. That is crazy. And so you're in Orange County, yes. so they contact you guys, but will people find a chapter where they live? How many chapters exist in the world? We have uh, nine chapters in the U.S. We hmm. have 10, I believe, chapters in Canada and two in the U.K., but we're also able, we get a great uh, discount from my husband's former employer, gives us a discount on shipping. And we're able oh. to ship a suitcase, say, from California to New York for about $20. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you're shipping it from California to New York, but then somebody has to carry it on the plane. Yes. And that has a cost to it, that right? Does. These days it does, depending on your airline and the, the level of ticket that you buy. The, the traveler will be responsible for any airline fees. There are some Canadian airlines that will waive those fees. There are some U.S. airlines that don't charge, and it, you know it is more now than it was five years ago. But right, yeah. <laughs> but and then once they get to the destination, how the heck do they find the clinic? Is it is it what if it's hours and hours away and they don't know the area? Yeah, we we have on our website we have a list of clinics 
um, like I said, we've been doing this for, they've been doing this for 30 years. So the wow. network is there. The, the infrastructure is there. If you told me you were going to uh, Cabo, for instance, I've got a connection in Cabo. I've got a connection in La Paz. I've got a connection in, we've got connections all over the world. So we'll, we have the names and phone numbers and addresses of clinics all over the world. And you just take it there. They're, they're waiting for you. They're grateful. It's a, really a wonderful experience for the traveler. So do, does that, so, but before we leave this, so you would hook them up with a clinic that's near to where they're staying, yes, right? Absolutely. They're not going to have to. No, okay. they're not going to have to schlep it. We don't, no one will come and pick it up from you at the airport or at your hotel. The, the whole idea is for you to have the experience of going to the clinic, meeting the locals, mm -hmm. seeing where your supplies are going and how desperately they're needed. Wow. And so what is that experience like? You've obviously done it. Yeah, we've done it a couple of times and it, it's so rewarding. I mean, these people, it, it depends on the country you go to. Some of these people just have so little. I've been to places where they didn't have band-aids. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so even, even a band-aid can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Well, Thank you for doing this. If our listeners want to get more information, can you give the website address once again? Yes, it's njt.net. That's as in not just tourists. And they can net. go on there. They can uh, put in their destination. They can put in where they are coming from to find the nearest clinic. And as I mentioned, if there's not a clinic, excuse me, the nearest chapter, if there's not a chapter near you, contact us in Orange County and we'll get you a suitcase. Well, thank you for doing that once again. Uh, you're really making a difference. And thank you for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thank you, Pauline. Thank you so much for helping us spread the word. I'm very proud to say that we have a terrific article on Frommers.com right now. The headline is Alcohol-Free Vacations, How to Join the Sober Travel Trend. And to help me discuss this is its author, Johnny Sweet. Hey, Johnny, thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me, what was your inspiration for writing this article? Um, well, this was a trend I had been noticing for some time. But actually, your editor approached me. It was Zach Thompson. And he said, hey, yep. we see you write a lot about travel, health, and wellness. Uh, would you be interested in exploring this topic for us? And I jumped at the opportunity because it, it aligns so well with everything I love to write about. Well, what was so interesting to me about how you approached it was you showed that this is a trend that goes well beyond people who struggle with alcoholism, that a lot of, of just average Americans uh, are deciding to go either alcohol-free in their lives or to make their vacations alcohol-free, right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, what we're seeing now is called a sober curious movement. So it's not always people who are giving up alcohol because um, they struggle with alcohol use disorder. Sometimes they haven't even given up alcohol at all. They might just be exploring cutting back from time to time or decreasing their intake of alcohol overall as a way to feel better and uh, appear more clear-eyed on their vacations and in life. Yeah, absolutely. And what also is interesting is there's a flowering 
of new both programs within existing travel entities and new sober travel entities uh, that are hitting the market. Let's talk a little bit first about the mainstream travel entities that you're seeing offering more alcohol-free options to their guests. What are, what are some of those? Yeah, so um, one of the most interesting ones is Hyatt Hotels. They did a survey of travelers in 2021, and they found that about 50% were as likely to opt for a non-alcoholic drink as they were to grab a regular beer or cocktail. Um, so in response to that, they created a new zero-proof beverage program across several of their properties in the United States. That's pretty mainstream. We're also seeing non-alcoholic beverage options become more widely available on cruises. For example, Carnival announced in mid-March that they can that um, people on its cruises can now order alcohol-free versions of their favorite drink from their popular Alchemy Bar. So that's really exciting. And Norwegian Cruise Line recently won a big award for their alcohol-free beverage program at the 2023 Vibe Vista Awards. Right. And we're also seeing more airlines doing this too, right? That's absolutely correct. So um, Virgin Atlantic in its upper class cabin has alcohol-free beer that, that passengers can now order. Um, and Emirates too, they've created some great mocktails like a Virgin Cucumber Gimlet that again, people in first or business class uh, can order from the flight attendant. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what really surprised me was there are certain destinations that you just associate with alcohol. I'm talking Las Vegas. I'm talking all-inclusive resorts where I, I think for many travelers, a lot of the appeal is unlimited booze. And yet, at Wynn Las Vegas, they have a new program, as does Club Med. Tell us about those two. Yeah, so um, Wynn is really interesting because they, their non-alcoholic beverage pro program launched in early 2023. And, you know, not only are they doing really cool non-alcoholic non cocktails, but they're also incorporating some wellness-promoting ingredients like ashwagandha and reishi mushrooms to um, make it more of um, a health-promoting beverage. So that's exciting. And then uh, in Spain, the new Club Med Magna Marbella, they have a Zen pool set a little bit upwards in the property. I visited myself. And at that pool, you can only get mocktails and smoothies. Oh. There's no alcohol at that pool, which I, I wasn't aware of until I visited the pool. And I, I actually asked for a cocktail and they said, oh, no, we're, we're non-alcoholic here because we're trying to create a, a wellness vibe. Hmm. Interesting. And then there are tours that are entirely alcohol-free, right? Who, well, tell us about some of those tour companies. Yeah, that's right. Um, so probably the uh, longest-running one is called Sober Vacations International. They've been around since 1987, so you can tell that this trend isn't entirely new. Um, but what's different is, um, you know, Sober Vacations International really caters to people in 12-step programs. Whereas some of the newer tour operators, like We Love Lucid and Hooked, they are catering to people who maybe just want to escape from alcohol for a little while, but they're not interested in, in giving it up entirely. So right. I think that's where we're seeing a big change. Do you know what happens if somebody on one of these trips is caught with alcohol? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, because we think it undercuts uh, the raison d'etre of the of these trips. 
Yeah, I, you know what, I think the risk of that is relatively low, because I think people attending these trips know what they're signing up for. So you have to, um, you know, specifically seek out an alcohol free tour or trip, if that's what you're looking for. It's not going to be sure. you know, surprise, you're on an alcohol free trip. Um, so I think, <laughs> right. in a way, um, you know, it's a self selecting group of people, you know, I think if somebody uh, on a especially one of these sober curious trips, and not necessarily the 12 step program trips, you know, if somebody on one of the sober curious trips went out and snuck off and got a cocktail somewhere. I would doubt that anybody would really notice or scold them, but it does kind right. of go against the spirit of the the trip that you're on. Yeah, absolutely. And you also give some tips for folks who just want to do this on their own. Tip number one is be selective about the place you go and the people you go with. That's good advice. What does it mean in practice, though? Yeah. So if you are going on a trip with a bunch of people who are really into partying or visiting all of the distilleries or breweries, that might be a trip that's kind of difficult for you to um, explore what it means to be sober or sober curious. So it's important to like think about who you're going with and whether or not that group or that destination really lends itself to the type of trip you're hoping to have um, as an alcohol-free person. Right. You also say, take the lead in planning non-alcoholic activities. So maybe even if you are going with these folks, maybe say, ah, let's skip the distillery tour today. How about horseback riding yeah, <laughs> or something else that that I, I would think there's probably certain activities that are very good substitutions, ones that, I don't know, get the endorphins flowing. Yeah. So um, one thing the experts I spoke to suggested was uh, doing some of this planning yourself. And and they, they say that when you're taking an alcohol-free trip, you should have a more jam-packed itinerary than you might have if you expect to be sipping cocktails by the pool all day. So they say fill it with active adventures. And, you know, in you know, one tour operator takes people to Iceland and does cold plunges. So stuff that's really invigorating and, and, and captures all your senses. So you're not even thinking about the fact that you don't have um, a fancy cocktail or glass of wine in your hand. Right. And and also research the places that will have nice non-alcoholic options. I, I still drink alcohol, so this didn't even occur to me, but I guess it's probably more, I don't know, satisfying to have a really nice mocktail than just have to have water while all your travel companions are, are sipping wine, right? That's right. Um, it used to be that if you'd ask for something non-alcoholic at, at a restaurant, the server might say, oh, you know, I, I think we have some cans of non-alcoholic beer somewhere in the back. Let me go take a look. But right. that's changing very rapidly now. Uh, we're not seeing entire dry bars pop up. There's one in Portland I'm aware of, and I think there's one in Austin. And these dry bars have a the same vibe that you would expect from a regular bar and the same fancy drinks with lots of garnishes and very creative flavors just without the alcohol. So uh, a place like that can be really fun if you're trying to explore the sober curious scene in a destination. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it was an important article. We're thrilled to have published it. And I'm thrilled to have gotten to talk with you. Thank you so much, Johnny, for appearing on the Farmer Travel Show. Thank you, Pauline. I appreciate it.
And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching K.